Well, good morning. Would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, um, having just heard your word, um, having been sobered by um, the reality of what these words signify of how your son was treated by us, we ask even now that as we consider, as we meditate, that you would speak to us, that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly, that you would lead us in the direction you call us to, that we might be your people in a way that honors your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when I was a kid, I had, I suppose you could say, a somewhat uneasy relationship with the otoscope. And if you don't know what the otoscope is, that's that pointy thing that the doctor uses to look inside the ears, and there's this light that shines. And I feel like I had an ear infection almost every other year, so I'd have to go to Dr. Chung, and then he would take the otoscope. And if you remember, like, it kind of tickles, and it feels weird, and you're not quite sure what they're seeing, but it's probably not terribly pleasant. But it's a good thing, right? The otoscope was what was needed so that, you know, he could look beyond the surface and see the infection and know how to treat what was going on. And I think there's a sense, actually, that what we have been seeing as we have just been kind of studying these passages that are focused all leading to the cross, that the cross kind of acts like an otoscope. It has this penetrating light that, that goes beneath the surface, not the surface of our ears, but the surface of, of our human kind of reputation, the way we want to think about ourselves, the lies that we try to tell, it goes beneath and it shows things that need to be seen. So a few weeks ago, we saw how the cross exposed Judas's hypocrisy and it brought it out and the sin was shown. Last week, we saw how the cross exposed Peter's false confidence and demonstrated his actual weakness. And if we have eyes to see, we don't just see Judas and Peter in these moments. We realize the cross is exposing something about ourselves. This week, as we consider the story of the cross and reflection in connection to Pilate, I think it shows something again about us, particularly as it relates to human justice. So I don't know if you felt this way, but I feel like in the last few years, I have just sensed this kind of growing longing within our culture for justice. There's so many different ways where I feel like we're hearing this cry, we want justice. You can think of the, the growing awareness of how power is abused, the growing consciousness of how people in positions who are vulnerable are being taken advantage of. There's the, the Me Too movement and the, 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 the protests smash the patriarchy. That is a call saying we want justice. We can think of the protests even this past summer and, and some of the very intense and complicated conversations about racism, conversations that are continuing this week. And we hear the cry, we want justice. And these cries are, are echoing biblical, passionate cries that we see throughout Scripture, one prophet after another, Isaiah or Amos or, or Micah. I can think of Micah says, listen, you rulers of Israel, aren't you supposed to know what is just? We want justice. Jesus, blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness could just as easily be translated those who hunger and thirst for justice. Blessed are they. It is right, Jesus is saying, to long for justice. The Bible holds out this idea of, of peace. The biblical word is shalom. What we were made for is this perfect harmony between God and each other and the world. That's what shalom speaks of. And the only way to get there is through justice. The only way to get there is if those who are wrong and taking advantage of things are punished. The only way to get to shalom is if those who have been put under and oppressed are, are empowered and brought to harmony with everyone else. That is justice. It is right. It is necessary for us to long for justice and cry out, we want justice. But of course, that cry is only the beginning. The, the thing that kind of comes after is how. And that's, I think, what our cultural conversation is about right now. How? How do we move towards that. If, if we have issues, and we do, with deep injustice, how do we treat this? What is, if you will, the infection that lies underneath things so that no matter how long we have sought for this, it continues to be a problem? And that, I believe, is what the cross helps expose as we look at the story of Pilate, Pilate, the Roman ruler, the Roman governor. It's perhaps helpful context to realize that if there's one thing that the Roman Empire was proud of, if there's one thing that the Roman Empire took seriously, it was justice. It was law. Historians will tell you that where people in Greece aspired to be philosophers, those same intelligent people in Rome aspired to be lawyers because it was seen that their legal system, their justice was what made Rome, Rome. It's what helped protect against the tyrant on one end and the mob rule on the other. It's what they thought kept the Roman Empire together. One poet, Virgil, in his Aeneid, which was written just a little bit before the birth of Jesus, says, You Romans, remember your great arts to govern the peoples with authority, to establish peace under the rule of law. That was the Roman image of itself. That's what you would see in the pamphlets that the Roman Empire would put out about itself. The reality was seen more in the thousands of middle managers like Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is introduced at the very beginning of our chapter, a little bit before the, the scripture reading, and he's named Pilate the governor, literally the hegemon, the ruler. And you might have noticed when Dave was reading again and again, Matthew doesn't just call him Pilate, he keeps on saying the governor, that is the ruler, the ruler. The point that we're supposed to understand is this guy is the guy who's been given the power. This guy is the guy who has been entrusted with the ability to bring justice on behalf of Rome. He is the ruler. Now, from Pilate's perspective, it's not clear that he would have really felt that powerful. Yes, he has ascended to a certain degree of importance. He seemed to have backed the right guy. Sejanus was like the number two only to the emperor, and, and Pilate was his man. But he hasn't gotten that far. He, yes, has a thousand soldiers under his command. He's He's got this great governor's palace in Caesarea by the seaside. All that's good, but he is in the middle of nowhere, more than a thousand miles away from Rome. He's in a dead-end position. The only way the emperor will ever know anything about him is if he makes a major mistake. Otherwise, he's stuck here. 
And he's important in this moment because he is the guy who makes the decision about life or death. Pilate has been ruling for about seven years in this area, and he's had a very complex relationship with the religious leaders. There have been times where Pilate has just wanted to kind of whip things into shape, make this place more efficient, more appropriately patriotic, and the religious leaders just don't like what he's doing. There have been resistance, there have been mobs, there have been protests, and now they're at this kind of standoff, this uneasy peace between them. And now the religious leaders need to bring Jesus to Pilate. Because the religious leaders, will remember, have decided they want to kill Jesus. And Pilate is the only one who can allow that kind of thing to take place. And conveniently enough, Pilate is in Jerusalem. I mean, conveniently enough for the religious leaders, it's fairly clear that Pilate would rather not be there. He'd rather be in Caesarea more civilized, more Roman, where he's getting his appropriate you know, respect. But, but here, because of cultural sensitivity, he's supposed to be here for Passover weekend, so here he is. And so the religious leaders come. And so you can just imagine, if we're trying to think of the situation for Pilate, it's now early in the morning, he's still sleeping, his assistant kind of enters in the room and kind of kneels down and wakes him up and tries not to wake his wife who's sleeping next to him and says, uh, Sir, there is a situation that's going to need your attention. So Pilate, you know, wipes the sleep out of his eyes. He sits up, runs his fingers through his, his thinning, graying hair, feels the aches of middle age, and not for the first time, wonders why he took this job. He, he gets up, gets on his Roman uniform, walks down the hallway, picks up some toast along the way, and he finally gets to his public office where he does his business, and he sits down at the desk, and he allows his chief of staff to debrief him on the situation. And apparently, this Galilean, who has been really kind of causing a bit of a buzz for quite a while now, has been in Jerusalem for a week. And the religious leaders have had enough, and they want him to be executed. So Pilate, having heard these things, nods, says, bring him in. And the assistant awkwardly says, well, they don't want to come indoors because they would be made unclean for the Passover. So Pilate gets up walks to the raised platform that's in the outside, and he, he looks down at the crowd. The crowd that, to his surprise, even though it's, it's barely dawn, is, is getting larger. He sees the religious leaders all in their kind of fine garb with their tassels looking very dignified. And then behind them, he sees a man in much poorer clothing who, who is being held and ushered by guards, and his hands are bound behind him, and... You can see bruises on his face, and one eye is, is swollen shut. He has clearly not been treated well. But for a moment, as he just looks up at Pilate, for just a moment, Pilate strangely feels like this man is the only person in this whole area that's actually in control. That there is not a hint of doubt in his gaze. There's not a sense in any way of cowering in his posture, he sees no attempts from this man to try to, to placate Pilate. So Pilate, having assessed the situation, decides it's time to go on. Let's see how to do this. Okay, what charge do you bring against this man? 
And uh, your excellency, uh, this man claims to be the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Pilate raises an eyebrow. He looks at him directly. He asks, are you the King of the Jews? And, and, and he hears a response, but the accent is so thick, and it could be maybe because his lips have been swollen that he can't quite hear right. It sounds like he's saying, you say, and he can't tell whether he's saying it is as you say or, or maybe he's asking Pilate a, quest, a question, what do you say? But even as Pilate is trying to understand, before Pilate has a chance to kind of follow up and ask more, the religious leaders interject, Your Excellency, he has been saying that you should not pay taxes to Caesar. He is a threat to Roman rule. And, and they go on and on for about 15 minutes. And as they just go on, Pilate finds himself not looking at them, but looking, looking at this, this man, Jesus, who just is still. And even as... All of these trumped-up charges, and the evidence is, is flimsy. There is no sense in this man of a defensiveness or a fearfulness or even a frustration. He is entirely present, and yet he is entirely silent. And after a while, as the... The religious leader stops speaking and Pilate continues to look at this man. There's just this moment of silence where Pilate is just waiting, waiting for, for what he'd expect, a response. Because that's always what they do. They always have a response. They always defend themselves. And so he waits for a moment as the religious leaders are looking expectantly to him. He's looking expectantly at Jesus. And, and finally he says, you've heard these charges. What do you have to say for yourself? And he doesn't say a thing. And there's a sense that the silence itself is the most powerful form of speech that Pilate has ever had. Because as he listens to the silence, as he is able in a moment just to look, he sees. He sees that this man is not someone who is seeking to bring a revolt or to threaten Rome. And more than that, he, he sees the religious leaders and he recognizes there's this vitriol, there's this anger that shows that this is fueled not by a desire for justice, but a jealousy. They don't like that this person is as popular as he is. They don't like how he is making them look bad. Pilate sees, and so he realizes that he is facing a dilemma. If he doesn't do what the religious leaders ask, there is going to be a price to pay. There will be a cost to him in the unpopularity of that action. But, but will it be, would it be just for him to let this man be crucified? So he's feeling stuck for a moment, and then suddenly it occurs to him. He recognizes that accent. In fact, the priests have said, he's from Galilee. Galilee, not his jurisdiction. And so immediately he says, you need to send, say, you need to send this guy to Herod Antipas. He's down the street. That's his jurisdiction. And without response, he goes back into his office, and he sits back at the desk, and he decides it's time to just start going through the business of the day. And he looks through his paperwork. And to his surprise, as he is sitting there, he sees this handwritten note and, a hand, and writing that he recognizes. It's from his wife, who must by now be awake. And, and it just says simply, Pontius, have nothing to do with that righteous man. 
I have been suffering because of a dream all night long. Pontius just looks at the letter for a while. Wonders what was in that dream. And he begins to kind of stare off into space. He's having a hard time getting work done because there's something about the situation that he can't quite name that doesn't seem normal. There is a level of anger with these religious leaders that's different from anything else he's experienced, and he's not quite sure why. And there is something about that man. There was a dignity, a strength, unlike anything he had ever encountered before. And now this note have nothing to do with this righteous man. Well, it's good that he sent him away. It's not his problem anymore. And then, of course, it is, because not that long after, his assistant comes back into the room and says, uh, when Jesus went to Herod, he said nothing. And I mean nothing. And so even after being beaten, he didn't respond. So Herod's like, okay, I'm passing this back to you. It's happening in Jerusalem, your jurisdiction. And so Pilate is now being forced to do something. And this is not something he wants to do. And then he remembers, okay, this is Passover weekend. And, and he's been having to kind of solve a problem anyway. It's been his custom for years to kind of get the goodwill of the community to release one Jewish criminal back to society to show just how merciful he actually is. And he really only has in prison another group, some insurrectionists who seem to have not done something that was terribly popular, but they were trying to kind of fight for their freedom. Barabbas is the guy that's leading them, and people don't seem to like him that much. People do seem to like Jesus a lot, at least that's what he's heard. So here's what he'll do. He'll bring those two names before the crowd, and if the crowd says they have to save Jesus, it's not Pilate's fault. So, that's what he does. He goes back out to the platform, and to his surprise, this crowd has gotten much larger, and he's noticing the religious leaders seem to be scattered throughout, having, having energetic conversations with different people. And, and he doesn't know what that's about, but he decides to move forward with his plan. He says, you know, it's my custom to release someone during this weekend. We have Barabbas, and we have Jesus. Which of these two would you like me to release to you? And the noise just keeps going, and it seems like no one is listening to him. The conversations are going, so after a little while, he repeats himself, which of the two should I release to you? And then finally, he hears an answer. We want Barabbas. He waits, hoping for a different answer. Yes, we want Barabbas. There are nods, there's agreement. The whole crowd seems unified. They want Barabbas, and suddenly, his head starts hurting. What is he going to do? He's feeling frustrated. He's, he's being pushed a little off balance. He did not expect this. And so in exasperation and frustration, he's like, then, then what should I do with this Jesus Christ fellow? And immediately, to his surprise, immediately they say, crucify him. And he realizes at that moment that this is what the religious leaders had been doing, that during this whole time of him being in deliberation, they had been speaking to the crowd, galvanizing the crowd, uniting them around this one idea, and he suddenly is afraid. And so, almost pathetically, he asks another question. He's like, so, 
Why? What has he done? In other words, he's saying, give me some ground upon to stand so that I can do this and look myself in the mirror so that I can know there's some reason that it's right for me to crucify him, but they give him nothing. They just say, crucify him again. And so he is faced with a decision for three times. Three times he has sought to not be the ruler. Three times he has asked the crowd what to do, and the crowd keeps pushing it back to him, and now he is forced. He has before him two clear things. On one hand, he knows. He knows that if he says to set Jesus free, not only will the religious leaders now be opposed to him, but notice it says when he saw that a mob was being formed and that he was getting nowhere, he realizes where everyone's attitude is, and he knows it will cost him. And yet, on the other hand, he is clear beyond the shadow of a doubt that this man is innocent. More than that, he, he knows what he has heard from his wife, that this man is righteous, he knows that this is not fueled by justice. This is fueled by jealousy. And so what, in this moment of decision, does Pilate, the Roman ruler, empowered to bring justice on behalf of the Roman Empire, what does he do? He washes his hands. And he just basically says, uh, fine. Uh, it's not my fault. You do what you want. Fine. We'll, we'll just let him be crucified. Here is, in history, the single greatest travesty, miscarriage of justice that the world has ever seen. Because in Jesus, you have someone who, unlike anyone else, is completely innocent. He is more than innocent. He is righteous. For all of his life in devotion to God, he has been seeking to serve every person he comes into contact with. He has sought to care for the poor, the weak, those who are diseased, to bring them back into community. He is loving. He is righteous. And, and what is this Roman Empire system of justice decided to do? It has decided to sentence this righteous man to the most torturous, humiliating, horrific death imaginable. And what this moment of, of the cross exposing is revealing to us about justice is that, that this injustice is not ultimately because of a bad law this injustice is not ultimately because of some tyrannical dictator just doing something selfish and powerful. No, what is the cause of this injustice is something that has been repeated thousands upon thousands of times throughout history. Someone with limited power, a middle manager, not doing what is right because he's afraid to lose his job. And what that tells us what I think we are meant to see here is that the infection, the thing that stands in the way of justice goes deep. Yes, there are 
enormous complexities about the way the system continues to, to move things forward in unjust ways, and those need to be dealt with. Yes, there is the terrible reality of such forces like white supremacy and, and toxic masculinity, and those need to be addressed. But both of those things, or all of those things, ultimately are symptoms of something that's deeper and more significant and yet more banal. And that is the very heart of the infection that drives all injustice is the cowardice and the selfishness of the human heart. You know, we've been talking about how we, we regularly hear the cry, we want justice, and that is a righteous and right cry. But the reality, I think, sometimes is even as it's being said, there is a second line that is unstated but there. We want justice as long as it doesn't cost us. We want justice as long as it doesn't cost us. I think of what I was reading about in San Francisco right now where there is a strong push for bringing about equity and justice. There's a renaming of schools, there are protests, but the economists actually say that if you really want equity in San Francisco, the way to do that is to lower the price of housing by having more high-density housing throughout the city. And yet again and again, whenever that's proposed, doesn't matter what community you're in, they will say, not in my backyard. We want justice as long as it doesn't cost us. And while it's, it's kind of fun to mock San Francisco, the reality is that it's not hard for us to draw connections and parallels in, in our communities. How many wealthy suburbs want to protect their schools, their funding, no matter how much it might mean depriving other communities? We've got to look out for our kids. I mean, that's, that's where injustice oftentimes is found, not through a tyrant doing something obviously wrong and cruel, but in some ways an even crueler apathy, an even crueler unwilling to act with whatever power we have been given. Because we might want justice as long as it doesn't cost us. And the reality is justice does cost it is costly truly to stand alongside those who are being attacked. It is costly to make, like Pilate did not make, unpopular decisions. It is costly to seek to empower those who have been oppressed. It is costly to accept accountability for past mistakes. Justice is costly. And that means we need to recognize that while it is absolutely appropriate to consider issues like structures and to consider different forces and wrong heading, it's, it's appropriate to deal with those, but we need to realize that fundamentally the weakest link, the thing that will always be the problem, is that there are thousands upon thousands of opportunities, of decisions, of people with small amounts of power like us having to decide between doing what is right and doing what is less costly. And more often than not, we know how people will land on that decision. You know, the African theologian many centuries ago, Augustine, said that the problem with the human heart is that it's curved in on itself. No matter how much we think we're altruistic, no matter how much we think we're loving, so often in reality what we're doing ultimately comes back to serving self. And as long as that is true, injustice will reign. 
As long as that is true, it doesn't matter how many policies we change, although policies need to be changed. It doesn't matter how many conversations we have to raise awareness, although awareness is needed. As long as our hearts are turned in on themselves, as long as we are who we are, there is no path to true justice. And this is what the message of the cross, this is what the message related to Pontius Pilate exposes. But paradoxically, the cross also invites us to a way where justice is realizable. Paradoxically, and we even encountered this a little bit when we were using Isaiah 53 as the call to worship, the injustice that Jesus encountered by going to the cross, he willingly chose to undergo so that justice might take place. The punishment that brought us peace us shalom was upon him. Scripture says that all of our wrongs, all of our sins have accumulated this horrible debt of injustice and Jesus at the cross has paid it. That Jesus died the death that we deserve to die so that we could be spared and so that justice can be accomplished. Jesus desired justice, and it cost him everything. And having died and risen again, he now invites us to a way. He, he invites us to find a cure for that infection. As long as we are who we are, injustice will prevail. And so Jesus says, come and become someone new. Jesus invites us to die to ourselves in him, to die to our old way of self-preservation, self-protection, self-satisfaction, and in him to become someone new, someone whose heart is no longer turned in on itself, but is beginning by the power of Jesus to be straightened so that we can begin truly to love and give ourselves and truly seek justice even if it costs us, even if it costs us everything. We have an opportunity as a newly created community in Christ to have something that the Roman Empire never could, the power of the Spirit leading us in a way of justice that our hearts are on their own incapable of. And as our hearts cry rightly for justice, what our passage with the cross tells us is that we need to cry to Christ himself. 